If you do me a quick favor, if you're listening to this, please hit the follow or subscribe button. It helps more than you know. And we invite subscribers in every month to watch the show in person. If I knew now what I knew then, I would have done a different journey. And the Grammy goes to dance album. DJ of the year. Diplo. 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 And I just remember I did this whole circuit working with all these young rappers and they were like really young. They were like 19, 20. And these rappers all started to die. You know, Little Peep, o- Overdosed, X was, was shot. Nobody really cares about like all the adoration you get. You care about the people that don't like you. And that you get caught up in that. It's not a consistent paycheck. Music never is. And it wasn't for me for three, four years. At one month, I'm not doing good. I, don't care. I can't pay rent. I'm homeless. What's the, the sacrifice or the cost in terms of like personal life balance? I have to answer that. Um, whenever I do this podcast, I, I always get really intrigued by the, the formative years of someone's life. And in your story, um, it seemed like a very, very humble beginning. When I look at where you started under the age of 14, um, I couldn't quite piece together myself, obviously, how that early upbringing had led you to becoming who you are today. Is there, is there anything when, from below the age of, say, like 14 that you can point at and say, if that hadn't have happened, or if that if I hadn't had that experience or that interaction with a family member or a grandfather, whatever it might be, I, I don't think I would be here today. I didn't start really producing, releasing music till like my mid twenties because it was pretty late. I, st- I was doing things, but not actually at a level where I could quit my job and it's my main source of income. But when I was younger, um, I was a pretty bad kid. I was bouncing from high schools and different middle schools and I was, I was actually sent to a military school at one point at like that age, like 14. Um, and I even got expelled from there. And then like, that was like the last, my, my last shot. Right. And I came back, they let me back in cause it cost my family like a lot of money. It was like $3,000 for me to go there because I was, I, I was getting sent out of every school, but going to the military school, maybe if anything, it taught me how to like, if I was going to do something criminal or like something bad like it was bad be a little smarter about it if anything because everybody there was like criminal the whole military school was just a bunch of terrible kids and they were like really knew what they were doing um so if anything i kind of like it was like learning from the school of hard knocks you know Mm. but i think being in military school even that it was only like for one year um and my father he was a vietnam vet and you know i think i can attribute his his concept of discipline to it you know like no matter how bad i was or how much i disagree with my father he gave me the most complex r- rules of what discipline means what it what it is to apply in whatever you're doing and i didn't realize that till i was older that you know all these what makes what makes my story successful like what makes me a better dj or what makes me a better songwriter it really i don't have the technical abilities but i have i always apply myself t- to find a goal you know and i really feel like that my, that's what my father gave me before before I turned into an adult, because it's just something I had inside me that separated me from everybody else when I got into the music business. Work ethic was such a clear thread throughout your story, like relentless, almost at times it seemed somewhat obsessive work ethic. And it's funny because when I hear about your early upbringing, I I guess my assumption is because it sounds quite similar to mine, getting kicked out of school and um, being the only kid out of four siblings that was like always getting bad grades, always in exclusion. Did people around you think you were going nowhere at that point 100 yeah i mean even till mid-20s my father was like how did you buy this house like how did you what are you doing like there's no there's no way possibly you're making money with music like he's like there's just no possible way and i went to college i went for um 
I went to UCF. I got a little part, like community college because I couldn't afford like a real school. I did two years there, just basically just getting, just being in a school so that I could have something to advance forward. And then I went to Temple University in Philly and I ended up dropping out of that school, but I went for anthropology and filmmaking. So it was like a really two other degrees that would literally turn into no job. But I was obsessed with documentary filmmaking. I thought that would be something I could, I could do. I was obsessed with culture. I was obsessed with humans and people and the steady of culture. And I was, when I was a young person, I was reading National Geographic all the time and watching documentaries. So that was something I was like, how do I apply that? You know? And uh, my father was also like, this is a huge mistake. What are you doing? What about accounting? That's a great degree to have. Um, in the end, I think what I'd learned at that university was, um, cause in the film program, it was like, there was a lot of creative avenues I could learn from in the people who are professors were almost like filmmakers that didn't make it and they have to be professors, it kind of feels like. So I was like, what am I doing here? I don't want to learn. These people aren't aren't even in the business, you know? So mm -hmm. the real business is like going out and making it yourself. And I think I just did that set third year. I was like, I'm out of school. But I, I kind of wish I had dropped out of college earlier and had a head start because it took you a while when you're paying your college tuition and working and it's so time consuming. Mm. And then eventually I started to, to, to do music and do little odd jobs like DJing to where I was like, oh, I can kind of like quit my jobs now. And also like, yeah, I think if I knew now what I knew then, I would have done a different journey. Mm. But I think that's what makes you who you are, you know, no matter mm. how long it takes. And, and eventually you make that decision to sort of, sort of start heading towards music, mm -hmm. right? Um, even though it's not paying you at all. And I was reading about the jobs you were doing in that pro period of your life. You worked at a zoo at one point. Yeah. You were a social worker at one point. Yeah. How long did that period of your life, when you'd made the decision to, to move towards music and that music was going to be your thing, <laughs> how long was that? It definitely wasn't. I mean, I at, at 22 years old, I was already working like nine to fives. You know, it was, it was like a, the social work job was my first job as like, this is a job that feels good to do. Like, you know, I'm working with children. I was going between teaching kids and then after school program. And it just felt like, okay, this is cool. Um, it feels like I'm doing something for somebody instead of working at like Subway mm -hmm. and making money for the head of Subway, which is kind of like a waste of my energy. But working with kids, I felt a little bit like I, I, I felt fulfilled, you know? I think, but then you run into the bureaucracy of, of, I was in a city like Philadelphia. So it was just like so much corruption, even in like this, the social work world, it was crazy. Um, eventually I was getting beaten down at that job too. I was like, this is, this is my life, like 22. I'm like, this is, this is all I can look forward to is like building my way into like this job or this job. And I think I started DJing on the side uh, at parties and learning from the DJs there because Philadelphia is a famous city for DJing. It's like culturally one of the most important cities in America um, for hip hop, for DJing. And I just started doing parties and then I saw what you do if you do your own party, like you can invest invest in yourself and promote a party and then you take everything, right? So I started learning small little business acumen from just doing parties. And then eventually I started, I can quit my job. I can make it, it was a huge step because at that point you don't know when you're doing music and parties full time, it's literally up to, to how much you're working or what you're doing to keep the money flowing to pay the rent. If I don't, one, one month I'm not doing good, I, don't, I can't pay rent, mm. I'm homeless. Um, it's not a consistent paycheck. Music never is. And it wasn't for me for probably three, four years. But yeah, it took, it, it just, it's just literally just putting your boots to the ground and like doing the work and like failing at it and learning what makes you better, what makes you more money. Like what's, how do you grow this business? Even in these little small steps, that's kind of what I did in those 
those first years of my career. And I wasn't even really making my own music yet. I was just DJing and making mixtapes and making edits and learning how to use computers still. Like I had nobody to teach me. I was buying hardware or, you know, in high school shoplifting from Sam Goody and Sam Ash and like Guitar Center, like samplers to use. So it really just came down to just the grind to figure out what works and what doesn't. It was so evident, even when I was hearing about you, like in the record stores and ultimately selling a record to can are they vinyls you were selling to Canadian yeah. samples and stuff? But throughout that, even like your, the story about you reading, was it William Faulkner's book? Yeah. And you, were, you had this clear hunger for learning, like teaching yourself how to make music, yeah. teaching yourself computers, teaching yourself the business side of things. Most people don't have a predisposition just to figure stuff out. Yeah. And that, again, when I'm trying to figure out exactly how you became this global superstar, I'm like, that feels to be a consistent thread throughout your story as well, that yeah. learning hunger. I think when you think about what a DJ is, uh, you know, now they're like David Guetta, they're headlining festivals, or even me, like I'm headlining my own shows. But back when I was growing up, you know, the big DJs from say Detroit, like uh, The Magician or like, you know, Africa Bambata, people that were DJs were like the selectors. They were like the guys who did all the work to know what music is there, what this music is, how this music exists. And they were like kind of the cultural benchmark. They were the guys who, who cataloged everything for to distribute in the scene, right? Mm. Um, so I think I loved that. Like, I was like, I want to, I love music. Like, I love what it is. I loved, and I went to parties and I remember seeing people like Questlove and like Cash Money and these DJs like Cosmo Baker playing crazy records, like playing Fela Kuti and then playing like, um, you know, a disco record and then playing something new, like a local hip hop record. And I was like, and then they're playing like Babe Ruth, like an old rock and roll record. I was, I was so obsessed with how they could connect these things that don't make any sense musically. And that's what I always thought was the great, I think story of what DJs do is they're like guys who can process all this culture and give it to you in a certain way. And now it's more streamlined. You're going to go to a house party, hear house music. You're going to go to like a bashment party here, dance hall. But the really special DJs were able to like do everything. And so I think when I learned that was like a skill set, I started looking at vinyl. I started learning about different music. I would like ask DJs, what is that record you're playing? Who are these artists? Like, what is Fela Kuti? Where's, what's, where's Nigeria? Where do they make music? Like, what's it sound like? You know, then I'm like, where are the producers? Like, oh, uh, the guy from The Who went to Nigeria and was a, was a drummer there. And then he went back and did this. And then, oh, James Brown heard this guy. And then he hired another drummer. This is like, became like a web of music. I started to like, follow everything and read liner notes. And then I just was obsessed with, with, gaining all the knowledge about music, whatever I could, and using that to apply it to being a DJ. That obsession just led me to being a record collector. You know, like I said, I traveled a little bit. At the end of my university, I went to India with one of my professors to work on a documentary in um, the border of Pakistan and, and India. It's called, uh, in Gujarat, it was like this this little, uh, kind of like a, a valley called the Round of Kutch. It was a huge earthquake there, I think around 2000. And I was there doing some sort of building work and, you know, working with a uh, Red Cross and things like that. And then I just kind of bounced and took a motorcycle and just went all over India and just explored my own. And I bought a bunch of vinyl. At the time, the most expensive record in the world were these Beatles 78s. They were like Beatles records, but yeah. like 78 RPM. Right. If you find good ones in India, <laughs> they only make them in India. If you find good ones, they're worth like a thousand to a couple thousand dollars. But I was finding Indian soundtracks. I was finding things like, um, there's a rec, a, a classic Indian soundtrack called Shalimar with like crazy like spy themes and like break beats on it at the time. If you find one of those at a record shop, pay like a, a you know a couple of rupees, you could bring it back to to London and sell it at like Poland Street for like you know three hundred pounds. Ooh. So that was like this weird hack I found like traveling and buying records. I did it in India. I did it in Philadelphia. I would go to New Jersey. I go to New York. And I would buy record old records and sell it to different record collectors. You know. Mm. Nick Questlove was one of my first guys I sold to. I sold records to Kanye West when he first started producing. Um, 
collecting records was like a, a, a certain business. And on eBay, that was another hustle I had, like selling things that I buy flea market stuff and sell it on eBay. A lot of it was vinyl. Correct. One of the, one of the thing again, things, again, that's so um, obvious and apparent with you, which is kind of a, th- a thread that kind of weaves between many of my guests, specifically comedians for some reason, because comedians, they at some point you see this decision they've made to like leave the city, mm-hmm. leave like, <clears throat> their job in finance and pursue this thing that has no apparent chance of making them any money at all. Mm-hmm. But they just follow this like passionate obsession. They spend a year going up and down the country working for nothing because they're obsessed with comedy for whatever reason. And a lot of young people, when they think about being a DJ or an entrepreneur or whatever, they think to themselves, okay, I want the admiration of standing there and all these people clapping for me and the money. Yeah. But you were so clearly led by this like unbelievably obsessive passion, which seems actually to be, if I was to say 95% of my guests um, followed one path, it would definitely be they didn't really care about the outcome. They cared about like the passion and the pursuit of the passion. Yeah. That's so clear with you, right? I mean, in the beginning, it was definitely a hustle. Like I love music and it saved me from, you know, in high, even in high school, I, you know, I moved from different high school to high school and I didn't have a, a friend group. So I kind of was like leaning towards, I want to play music, but I couldn't, my parents wouldn't even buy me a guitar. Like I didn't even know how to play. I was like, well, how am I going to learn a guitar? You know, how am I going to learn piano? But I like was like DJing. That's like the future of music. Like in, the, mm-hmm. in my in my it was like turntablism was really big. I remember being like sixteen, being like, I'm gonna buy record players. That's what I'm gonna buy. That's mm-hmm. like that's what I'm gonna do as a as like a creative person. Mm-hmm. This is like a futuristic way to to do things. So I, I I leaned into that. Started learning what a DJ was. But in the beginning, yeah, I I had to do the the groundwork to know what it is I'm gonna play. Like what it is that the music comes from. Where was this music at? Where do I buy the records? What do the crowds react to? Et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, this formative years I spent time grinding, but then eventually I was like, okay, how do I make money out of this? And yes, I mm. want to play for a crowd. And yes, I want adoration. Yes, I want to meet girls. Of course, mm. it, that happens later and that's another drive. But in the beginning, I just, I didn't really expect to have a job out of it, you mm. know? Do you think you would have been as successful as you are if you, if someone had taught you how to make music and you'd been really mentored by someone because sometimes that, hurts innovation and creativity if there's a if convention is too involved yeah if you know what i mean i do what you mean because i see nowadays like kids can literally learn and copy any style of music in a day because they have a tutorial it's so easy it's really easy and i wish i had that but then at the same time i wouldn't have i wouldn't have had such a definitive like who i am and if i were people always ask me when i do radio shows like what advice do you give to young djs and it's like always the same thing like what makes yourself unique like what what really makes you different because I could throw a fucking rock and I'm going to hit a DJ or artist in the head in London. Like I'm going to, there's somebody here. It's, gonna, it's like, somebody, I'm not talking about you, but, yeah, I'm like, but, but it's so easy. Like I, I literally get demos all the time. Like what? I don't even care. I don't even pay attention. I used to actually like try to listen to demos. I'm like, mm-hmm. this is all the same shit. Like people are doing the same thing over and over again. Like, you know, whether whatever city you're in, there's like a thing. And every once in a while you get like a special person that comes out of nowhere and you're like, wow, that's unique. Mm-hmm. Like, like, but really what, what is it? Like for me, you were talking about William Faulkner. I really tapped into like my Southern heritage when I was younger. I was like, what? I, I loved like Miami bass music growing up in Florida. I loved like, um, you know, the crunk scene, the bounce scene in New Orleans. I, lo- I grew up in Tennessee for a couple of years. So I loved like Memphis rap. It was like my favorite thing. So when I went to the East Coast, none of that stuff was happening. Like nobody mm-hmm. listened to that music. So I was like, let me bring this to the East Coast. Let me start playing this at my parties. And it took off. Like all this new sounds I brought, even though they're just like, one hour flight down south to hear Miami bass music. No one listened to it in Philly. So I was playing this stuff mixed with like 80s records. And that was like my brand. I was the guy that was like doing this mashup culture. Mm. And so nobody else had that party. There was like urban parties and be playing hip hop. There would be 
you know, rock and roll parties playing like glam rock and you could dance to it. There would be like high-end parties playing house music, but nobody was playing for like the art school kids and the hipsters at the time because it was pre-hipster. It wasn't even a word yet. And I was like, that's my market. And I was like, no one's tapped into this. Let me go ahead and do this. You know, and every time I've, every, every little venture I've done as a musician has been like, why is no one in this market? Like even when I did Major Laser, it was like reggae and dancehall we were doing, but nobody was really doing it in the clubs in, in America. There was like, if you go to like Philly, you want to see Vibes Cartel, you, you, you have to go to like this one ghetto club in like Lancaster and it's like only Jamaicans there. And I'm like, this is such crazy music. Like, why don't we do this on another level? Like, why don't we work with some of these artists and do bigger records? And so I was like, no one's doing dance hall. Let's do it. This project. So everywhere I went, I was like, ex- experimenting. Like, what? Do, how do I do this and kind of make it my own? Or how do I like work mm. this into my sets? And um, it's been like a journey. For, you know, f- this is twenty years now. I'm doing this since I played at f- my first show at Fabric, and it feels like I've done so many. If you're a fan of mine, you follow me for twenty years. It's a really tough journey because it's like I've done. You're gonna go to reggae music. You're gonna go to country music. Now you're gonna go to deep house. You're gonna go this way and this way. But a few people actually go with me and follow my career so um you know i think that's what makes me a one-of-a-kind person i guess so back to my my point when young people give me ask me questions of like what is it to what kind of advice, advice i can give you i'm like what find like a really unique thing and just and just lean into that lean into that so hard like figure out even if it feels weird just make it make sense you know make it make it work for you because otherwise you're just going to be one in one of a hundred like clones of different djs different rappers if it feels weird, is that sometimes also an indication that there's a big opportunity there because it's it's yet to break or it's yet to be discovered? So like weirdness might be a- hundred percent. Yeah. More now than ever. Back then it was like, I mean, even DJs wasn't a thing when I started doing it. Like you, would, you wouldn't, you DJ being a DJ wasn't a career. It was like, <laughs> there's a few guys on the radio. In Europe is different. There was a DJ culture here, but in America, there wasn't like a, a job description called DJ. Like you wouldn't think there wasn't DJs on the radio. Weren't, they weren't featuring on their music. Um, now it's pretty commonplace, but but just being a DJ was unique for me. But nowadays, since there's so much information all the time, so much media, there's mm. so much artists fighting for your eyeballs and your ears on TikTok and Instagram, mm. it's more than ever important to have something like, wow, I got to go look at that again. Because it's like just having a catchy hook's not enough. Mm. Everybody has a cat. Like there's a th- thousand catchy hooks. You can just go and buy them literally at the market. It's like not special. One thing that really surprised me about you as well is that you're quite, um, I don't know whether the word is, is humble about your talent, but when I, I've seen in multiple interviews, when you're asked what the biggest misconception is about you, one, one of them you said is that, that I'm talented. And I've heard you say a number <laughs> of times that you're faking it or that you're still looking for the va- yeah. some kind of like validation that you're a real, di- you know, and even at the start of this conversation, you said, I'm not technically the best or, yeah. where does that, is that imposter syndrome? What is that? No, I think I've always been like more of a conceptual artist. Like, you know, I think of music and concepts. I think of music as like, oh, it's like a math problem, you know? Like, how does this add to this? How do I make it work? You know, it's always been like a riddle every time I try to think of like what to combine things. Now it's a little easier because I'm like, oh, I'm doing this kind of dance album and I know exactly what works because I'm DJing these records and I'm making, you know, collaborations with friends of mine and artists. But when I was younger, I literally, my first album was called uh, Florida. It was, on, it was on Ninja Tune. And it's so weird. Like I remember being just like so stoned and just fucked up and like making this record. And like people still hit me back. Like that record was a classic. I'm like, what are you talking about? It was like crazy chaos. It was like me just like in my room in Orlando, like trying to figure out how to, I wasn't even, things weren't even in key. Like I'm sampling on this like two channel, little like a Kai S20 sampler. Like that thing worked. And um, 
<laughs> laying things out. Like if you know anything about DAWs, like workstations, like they're so complex, like Logic, Ableton. Back then I used something called Cool Edit Pro and there wasn't even like a piano roll or anything. I just had like Windows, like Photoshop, when you just like, I just layered the loops on top of each other and sequence it in one long window because I couldn't, it was just, it was the worst way to work ever. But I learned this ass backwards way that kind of gave me a little flavor, I guess. But I never was like a a, a musician, you know, like I never, I never mastered a, a, an instrument. And I always thought DJing, I never was a good turntablist. Like, I mean, if you put me in my room with like a track or like DJ craze, it's embarrassing. Those guys are like, they're, they're like magicians, you know, but I thought, I, I'm the guy with like ideas and how do I apply those ideas? And it became easy with, as the technology advanced. Like I'm like, oh, these programs make it a lot easier for me. I don't need to like play my MIDI keyboard. I don't need to be Scott Storch. You know, I can just like mm -hmm. literally see the audio. Ableton's my favorite because I see audio and I can work with raw audio. It's, it's my mind works that way. So I think, yeah, I'm more of a conceptual person than I am like a, a, like a digital auteur. Even with even with production, I mean, I always say like Skrillex is like the guy that blew my mind. Like he uses like a computer, mm. like a like a grand piano. Like he just does. It's the craziest thing he does. You know. It's, so I think there's people that are in my generation that are like those savants, and I'm not, I'm not that, but I I'm, I kind of mixed my talent for new 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 sounds and a talent for songwriting to make what like who I am. But but to say that you're you're faking it, and to, I mean maybe it was a joke, but yeah. to describe it as. The biggest misconception. It might have been talking about DJing because I mean, literally, it's probably right. like the most. Uh, it's people will ask me like how to you know like how to do it or what to do mm. it. It's such a you can learn it in ten minutes like how to do the, the technical sides. You know, mm. um, was I faking that? I mean, no, because at the end of the day, what I think makes DJ special, what I explained earlier, is that you have this. You have to have history. Mm -hmm. That's what makes it special. I think it's why you have DJ careers in in London, especially. These guys are like David Rodigan. You know, mm -hmm. he's like a guy who's like in his like late sixties. I hope I don't age him, maybe seven. <laughs> but he's been doing this since he was interviewing Bob Marley. Like he's a, st and he still rocks parties, playing like selecting the perfect records because he has mm. the skill set. Like he knows exactly. He can read a crowd in like Southwest London. He can go to Jamaica. He can go mm. to like Italy. He can play the, the right songs at the right time. So um, there's something intrinsically beautiful about you know being a DJ. But yeah, some things it feels like I'm faking it. But I mean, even in the beginning, I I faked it to like get the, get in the studio. You know, that's what I did to like, to, to have my foot in the door, you know? Quick one, as the seasons have begun to change, so has my diet. And um, right now, I'm just going to be completely honest with you. I'm starting to think a lot about slimming down a little bit because over the last couple of, probably the last four or five months, my diet has been pretty bad. Um, and it started to show a little bit. Really over the last two months, I go to the gym about 80% of the time. So I track it with 10 of my friends in a WhatsApp group and this tracker online that we all use together. We call it Fitness Blockchain. And I'm currently at 81%. Um, so 81% of the days I've done a workout in the last 150 days, right? So I'm going to the gym about six times a week. That's been a little bit impacted by the Diary of a CEO live tour, but I'm trying to stick to it. And so one of the things I'm doing now to reduce my calorie intake and trying to get back to being nutritionally complete and all I eat is I'm having the Huel protein shake. Thank you, Huel, for making a product that I actually like. The salted caramel is my favorite. I've got the banana one here, which is the one my girlfriend likes. But for me, salted caramel is the one. When you asked about your creative process, I, I was looking through the, the huge wealth of traveling that you've done. Brazil, India, um, spent time in London, and various parts of the world. Um, how formative 
is travel and going to these different cultures and understanding the way they do things to what the art you ultimately created. Because when I think about creativity from a marketing standpoint, I see it as like pulling together lots of little pieces to form yeah. something new. And you you have, because of your obsession with the vinyls and the musics and the samples, you seem to have this like huge wealth of like artistic reference points yeah. to create new stuff from. I'm just obsessed with the conversation that's like happening all over the world. Like, you know, whether I go to Brazil or, or you know, London's a good example where you have this like, pan-african jamaican caribbean and then like you know european thing happening that's like drum bass that's like funky yeah. that's like um now it's drill like there's all these genres that if you look look into it why it exists you can literally pinpoint the first creators and like where they come from and like why is it like where, why do they make this kind of sound so i was always like putting together the, the equations like why mm. are these things happening and brazil's one of my favorite places to, to to talk about because i was hearing this music it was called um, funk karaoke for a long time there's girls that were doing a party in Philly and I remember they gave me a mixtape and it was this like sound that was a mix of Miami bass and samba and like heavy metal because they're screaming songs. There's bass beats, but they're using like these tamborzinho like drums. Yeah, so I was like, what the fuck is this? I like literally couldn't find any information on this music. So I went to, I went to, I went to Brazil and I actually had a magazine fund this trip. It was, it was, a, it was an article for Fader Magazine and I went down there and met the big DJs and I just became immersed in that scene, you know, producing with some of those guys, learning to, to produce with them and um, moving that sound forward a little bit. I think my first real, real production was with MIA. It was called Bucky Dungun. And it was a, it was a funk record that we did. And remember we, we actually went back to Brazil and played it at this huge festival. And it was like a massive hit mm. in Brazil and actually helped, I think maybe validate some of the funk music in Brazil because before that it was like a Rio thing and it became like a, all over the country they started making and now if you go to brazil like funk music is the most commercial thing back then 20 years ago it was like a pretty underground mm. genre and um but yeah everywhere i go i'm like i, I want to learn more once i learned like all the catalog all the old producers from you know jazz funk and soul and hip-hop then i'm like the rest of the world is there's like endless possibilities of where music comes from and what's going on so i started like venturing out there in terms of your creative process as well you, you, in two different interviews, I saw you talk about creating music that lasts a lifetime, like really timeless pieces of art. Mm -hmm. And the question that I had when I saw you say that was like, how do you do that? How do you, how can you even anticipate that a, mu a piece of music is going to be timeless? Is there something in the design of it or the inspiration or the story? There's a, there's a few times I've been in the studio and I'm like, a song I might be working on gives me goosebumps. You know, that, that happens. Um, it was like when I did the, we did Justin Bieber's Where Are You Now? Like something like that, like just was like, whoa, what the hell are we doing? And then like Lean On for Major Lazer, that was a record that I've probably spent one year on the production, you know, because I did so many different versions. I was like, no, this isn't right now. This isn't what's happening right now. This is, I need to do something. As a producer, my job is to predict the future. Like when I release this record, after I make it, it's going to take like three months to actually get to the people, you know, because mm. it's like you needed to go with labels, clearing the record. It can't just be like back in the day, I would make an edit and DJ it. And it was like hitting people right up but my little local neighborhood. But a producer's job is literally like try to like at least mine, my forte has always been like, how can I do something that's going to be big in like six months or like a year? Like kind of like being futuristic sounding. Because that's what the big, that's what the greats have always done. You know, Prince or Timberland or Pharrell, they've always made records that trend set because they were so futuristic. So my, my goal has always been to follow them, never to follow a trend. Um, and those two records were ones that we did and we're like, yes, this is going to work, even though it's fucking crazy. Or even Pond the Floor, I remember listening to that and driving around in the car. Um, that was the song I did for Major mm -hmm. Lazer. I remember driving around to LA and looking at the guy who produced me named Switch and we were just like, this is, is this going to work? It was so crazy. Like we were just like, this is so wild. And then 
And then, yeah, like four years later, Beyonce sampled that record and it became a massive mm. hit. So there was like, my career's always had these little moments where we do things and then they, the ramifications happen later. You know, you, you feel the effects, you know, the seeds, like you said. Mm. Um, but yeah, having classics is important. And I think a couple of times, you know, when you're, on, you're in it and you're like, okay, this is, this is worth the time. This is worth the effort because learning songwriting with some of the great guys like, um, you know, Dr. Luke saw my publishing in the beginning and having to be in the studio with him and Circuit and a lot of his writers, I was like, man, you've spent three days on like a second verse. Like, this is what you do now. As a, that's what pop music is. Like you literally, like if you think a record is the big record, you it's, it's so painstakingly, like, like the effort is so concise, like how to make this the best record ever. Like everything is like a perfect addition, like an architect, You're like every little corner of the house has got to be perfect, mm -hmm. right? So I learned that process, which I don't do very often, but when a record's big, I follow through. And then otherwise, just do a shit ton of records and one of them's gonna be good too. That's another process you can do, which also, I can do that too. Like just put, you know, randomly I'll put records out and a record like On My Mind, which is another house record on my album, that was a huge TikTok record, which would ne we would never guess. Like you can't even guess when those records happen. How, yeah, so because you can't guess when one's gonna be a winner and maybe one's not gonna yeah. catch on. As a creative, do you kind of try and not, harm your piece by trying to predict too much what the outcome is going to be do you just focus on the process itself and uh, like how much can you can you predict if something's going to be a i mean there's a lot of like in this like we're talking about being in the studio so like i said there's a process like to making a great record but there's also like diplomacy when you're in this when you're a producer like you have to know the artist like you know ed sheeran do you have an extra record we can try to work on and then he gives you songwriting and that's how like a record like cold water happened was another uh, bieber song i did and then you're like okay, how do we, can we ask B, uh, Bieber's manager, can he maybe do this record? We'll do a trade for a production then. Okay, then th that deal's in the place. Then, okay, who can play the guitar on this? Oh, you find that person. So sometimes it's literally like being like a an ambassador, like talking to all these people mm -hmm. to try to put a record together too. Like that's another process that I had to learn. And that's something else. Like when a record's already done, like you take a song and you dress up the production, you still have to, to find the, the all the keys to make that record work. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's like, every record is a different journey, you know? And now with dance music, I'm literally just in the studio hearing records and trying to figure out what sound I want to make for a live mm. effect. And then I apply that in the studio. But um, I've literally probably, every kind of songwriting you can do, I've, I've, I've done it, you know, from like sitting with an acoustic guitar with Madonna to, you know, recording sound, field recordings in a favela or, uh, you know, paying for studio session for a reggae artist with like my last little bit of money in Philly. Like it's at a, at, um, you know, the root studio and like barely getting a hook. And then it was not even good enough to making something out of that later. You know, like it's always like, it could be collections of, of vocals or sample packs or everything I've done, you know, I've, I've tried it, you know. What's the cost of all of this in terms of on your, maybe cost is a, a bit of a presumption, but what's the, the sacrifice or the cost in terms of like personal life balance? Because- you're obsessed. You're yeah. obsessed with No, you. I think I, I was a, I was probably running at like 200 miles an hour until COVID happened. I don't think I would ever take a break. And that was probably the best thing that happened. Like when I got, when COVID, when the lockdown happened and I couldn't do shows, I was like, shit, let me actually buy a house and let me actually like, you know, like figure out what's my next steps in life. Mm. I kind of needed that break because I was just going, everything was breakneck speed, you know? It was like the Grammys this weekend. Oh, you have a session with this person this weekend. Oh, we got to get back on this. I got to go to Jamaica and do this. It's like everything was happening. I never said no to anybody. I was like, this is crazy. I was like, you know, a musician has the same life as, all, as an athlete. You have like a, a peak, you know? If you're a linebacker in NFL football, your career is like maybe three or four years because you're getting beat up. A quarterback can play, four, you know, until he's 44. Um, 
a producer or an artist like they're just hot for as long as they're hot and then they mm-hmm. have to find they have, like they have to come down some of them can just continue to always go there like you know you have like people that are just always going to be in your mind like madonna or you know um some of the big pop stars like taylor swift every record is going to perform but a lot of times you like on borrowed time you don't know when you're when you're when your window is going to close so for me i was like i gotta keep going keep going and i never i feel like i never had hit my my peak so i was like let's keep pushing it forward and eventually i was like you know what this isn't that important <laughs> like let me like actually enjoy my life i have three kids now i want to like do things i want to want to you know explore more but not think about the work i want to do things that maybe benefit my my mind and i think that's kind of what the the last two years of downtime has given me even though i did produce a lot of records in between it was on my own terms you know i wasn't like chasing all the the live events and i wasn't chasing all the different uh successes i could have had um covid was very much the same experience for me it's actually why i resigned from my company because i i actually got to look at my life it was like when 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 i stopped flying eight times a month um i got to look at my life and um i also got to feel what it was like to slow down and talk to my friends and my family a little bit. When you think about your pre-COVID life, um, now you've got the, hind- the benefit of hindsight and you've right. had time to pause. Um, were you happy in that phase of your life? I was because it's weird. I mean, I was losing touch with thing, other people. I felt that. So I was like very insular, but my life, I run the best, like when it's chaos, when I'm doing 300 shows a year and I'm like, getting up and doing the emails and going to the gym. And then I'm like, this is like, I just, I just work under pressure. I don't know what it is. It's like my, my, like my best forte is, is to have just chaotic stuff happening all the time. Mm. And I'm like, somehow I can get through it. So I I was into that. And I was like, this is a very unhealthy way to live. Um, So now it feels like I'm back on a promo tour and it feels like I'm back on this like fast track, fast track. And I'm like, uh, kind of want COVID a little (laughs) little bit, but, but then, you know, it's all part of the process. If you put a record out, it's important for people to hear it, you know? Mm-hmm. Like you only have one chance for records to be released. And it's like, you should give that, if you have a great song, you should give it every opportunity it has to reach people because that's, it's it's one shot, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but don't waste your time on every song. Like mm-hmm. you have a good song. I got this song, the song Miguel that we're, that we're promoting. I'm like, this song's worth the work, you know? Other songs maybe like, eh, I'll put them out and maybe something will happen. You don't never know. Maybe it's in three months, there'll be like a, a midget dancing to it on TikTok or something. And like, it'd be, it's a crazy experience or something. Mm-hmm. And it goes viral. You never know what's going to happen. It's like just rolling the dice every time. <laughs> but every once in a while, there are some steps you can take to ensure a record has its best chance at surviving, you know? And that's like what you're doing now, right? Yeah. Like the, the promo, yeah. putting effort behind it. Um, just so then, so COVID happens, your world kind of grinds to a halt. Everybody's does. And you probably find yourself in a house somewhere alone. Yeah. How's that? then in terms of mental health and dealing with the sudden stop i th- i think uh i mean the, th- the thing that sucked the worst about covid is i had these children and like it was a time i was like man i could do whatever i want <laughs> but there was nothing to do like you couldn't go to in la we closed the parks for so long we closed like there was no school like you know there's no birthday parties you can't go see other kids like it was just kind of like it's almost like a a waste opportunity i had like a mm. whole year to be with my kids and i was like what do we even find time to do i was like i buy a house we'll basketball courts in the house just play basketball like it was like literally i made an environment for them to enjoy life but um i think honestly i've been doing this for so long and i've made a, a really great team around me like i have these great women that like are like that always work with me and like work for me and i think it just feels like there's a big family like now you know like people like it's a team whether it's like on my management side or just like my personal side it's like i have a people that are always looking in my best interests and i, and I think 
I got lucky. I was, I've been doing that since day one. Like my first manager worked for me for free for the first year. Cause he just like believed in what I did. And I was like, I don't need a manager. I was making so much money before I paid taxes, like just selling mixtapes <laughs> and DJing. Like I was like, I bought a, I bought a, a property in Philadelphia, like in my first year of like learning how to hustle the system of, of being a DJ. And then I was like, damn, but there's, he was like, there's, there's, there's more to be done though. Like he's like, there's more you can do than just living in Philly and like mm. buying, being the biggest DJ here. And I think he gave me that, that motivation to like be bigger. And from him, I, you know, another management group happened. And then I've had a lucky journey. I've been the same with the same team for, you know, 20 years. Wow. A lot of people don't get that. Mm. But I also think I was very visionary in what I want to do. So if you're like a young person, like you get sucked up by management or mm. whatever, you, they might have a vision for you or they might not, or they might not have the right vision for you, or they might not give you the room to be yourself, then you're gonna switch like 40 managers and you might not ever find, you know, the success you need. So it's important to find people, you know, that really believe in you, but also believe, let you be yourself because you gotta find that. Cause you're gonna be, that's all you got at the end of the day. You can lose a million managers and a million people, but you can always start over and just be you. Reminded me of the Avicii documentary that I saw, which was a real, yeah. real pivotal moment in my life. Cause, um, yeah, so I spent four weeks at home in 2019 and I was very much being dragged around. We had a thousand employees, so I was being dragged around the place. And that documentary taught me the importance of saying no to stuff. 100%. Like Avicii, I feel like I never, his, he was probably like one of my biggest influences, even though he's younger than me. I remember hanging out with him a couple of times. I was just like, man, this guy, this guy's a genius, but like he doesn't feel like he's in, he's in his own skin, you know? Because I don't think he ever had that chance to be who he, be, be, be what he wanted to be. He was like, he was almost like a, became like a machine because his success happened mm. so quick. Um, but that happens a lot. That's like the one story in the DJ world, but in the pop world, it happens like way too much, I think. Are you good at saying no to stuff? No, I say yes to everything. But I'm also like, I have really thick skin. I feel like my personality is, is enormous. I can also like, I can I can find my way through things. I'm, I always say yes, and then I'll say no for the next time if it sucks. But yeah, yeah. I've done everything, you know, and I'm like, uh, you know, this isn't the right thing. I'm, I move on. Or even if it's a studio session, I might go get breakfast and I might never come back. You know, whatever it is, I'll, I'll give everything a chance, you know, but uh, I know, I know now some things, you know, my management knows me now to where they, some things don't even get to me. The, the questions don't even come because mm -hmm. they know it's like a no, or they know I'll say yes. And it was a bad, it'll be a bad yes. Thick skin. You, yeah. you started talking a lot about mental health over the last couple of years, your partnership with Calm as yeah. well. I was reading about, um, mental health in the DJing world, but mental health amongst men anyway. What's your journey been with your own mental health? I think, you know, just being put as like, a, you know, whatever celebrity or whatever it is, being attention always on you is you're gonna have so many critics and you're gonna have so many, you know, the love is cool, but nobody really cares about like all the adoration you get. You care about the people that don't like you. And that you get caught up in that, even if it's only like 5%, but they really wanna be vocal about, they don't like you or they don't love you. Uh, that bothers you no matter who are who you are you know eventually i had to just like wow these people suck like just whatever you're gonna it's you're never gonna get away from those the people that like want to always be critics you know they just want to get a rise out of you i think eventually you just got to say fuck it the people that are around me their opinions what matters like the people that i trust mm -hmm. and you can't like kind of sit in the opinion of people that don't either don't know you or maybe build an opinion about you from you know whatever it is because when it comes to social media it's like a game you know it's not like you it's it's look i was talking about conor mcgregor earlier today i'm like he's like the biggest heel he most paid athlete last year even though he didn't fight because he's like people love to hate him you know so he built a brand out of just being that person um 
but you got to take it with you got to take the good and the bad with it. I mean, if, if you if you want to be in this business, which is like I guess show business, like you said, the comedians, the DJs, I'm like kind of like a a popular DJ. I'm, I'm more like a like a people might go to my shows and not even know my music because they know my brand, mm-hmm. and that kind of sucks because you and you don't you don't know they don't know what they're <laughs> going to get. But um, because I'm on that pedestal, you're just going to get eyes on you for everything. So I feel like you just have to. If you want, if you want the success, if you want to be at this level, you got to like just take it. And if I didn't want it, I would just back up, you know. But I can take it, so I feel like it's something that I had to learn to grow into myself and just be like, okay, be comfortable. Because what really matters is, is my team, you know, who, what my family thinks about me, what my team thinks about me, and I think that's those people will give you that motivation to go every day. Have you made an, a conscious effort to like shorten that? circle by like logging off i read somewhere that someone else has your twitter password now and you don't really yeah. have it and have you made a conscious effort yeah i haven't been on twitter in like five years but i think um yeah it kind of sucks i hit or miss because i mean even tiktok i was like slow to do that but then like i said if you want your if you want your your brand to exist it's got to be there like because that's like you know there's more eyeballs on tiktok than there are on youtube nowadays so you really you have to be part of that conversation with the, with the audience um it took me a while. Like I had to find people that actually could help me run that because I couldn't do it myself and I couldn't be, you know, in the- every day long, like t- videotaping and doing dances or whatever. So I had to find different ways to make those things work for myself. Um, it wasn't easy in the beginning, but uh, yeah, I don't stay on, I don't stay on the social too much, but then of course during this album cycle, I'm on there and I'm like having to always participate. But, you know, luckily I think I've got great fans. I've got great people, great, great response to my album. It wasn't that difficult, but Every once in a while, you have to get, you have to take your mind off it because you can get caught up, you know? Well, what made you start talking about mental health and being a bit of an advocate for that? You said that a lot of people should speak about it a lot more. Where did that inspire you? I think probably after the Avicii situation. And then, you know, I work with a lot of rappers. I think I had had a hip hop album that came out like two years ago, three years ago, maybe four years ago. It's called California. And I had a little Zan and I had a little Peep on it. And I had um, Trippy Red and I had, uh, I was working with XXXTentacion. I just remember. I did this whole circuit working with all these young rappers and they were like really young. They were like 19, 20 and the studio sessions were so weird and crazy. And then start, these, these rappers all started to die. Like they all started like, you know, little peep o- overdosed on um, opiates and, you know, X was, was shot, but he also had such a crazy vision on life and experiences. And his, he was like, went through so much. And I saw, I saw what was happening to these young guys cause they were getting so popular so quick and i was really i just i just like damn these guys all need like a big brother so i think just with those guys a lot of them i was helping them out making decisions but just seeing how crazy it is to be a 20 year old right now is is much more difficult than when i Mm. was there you know when i was there you literally had your group of friends and that's all you knew Mm. people on your street now everybody knows who you are or can know you who you are or have have some kind of opinion about you and i think you have to find ways to like I said earlier, block that out and just concentrate on like being the best you, which just sounds like a cliche, but you really have to compete with just yourself every day, not everybody else. One of the things that I saw in that Avicii doc as well was he was suffering with pretty severe anxiety. I, I remember the scenes of him being in that hotel room and his manager saying, we've got to go mm-hmm. and him saying, I, I'm not going. Yeah. Have you ever felt that anxiety? Have you ever felt that that kind of crippling? No, I think, you know, I've, I deal like people like close to my life have anxiety and they have a tax lot and I have to, talk them down sometimes. Um, so I know how, how it feels. And that's just like in the day-to-day life. Me, I feel like I still like the stage. I've never been, and I've also, like I said, I've also made a, a, a concerted effort to make the team like make me comfortable, you know? 
the Avicii documentary, I'm not going to talk about like the people on the team, but like mm. they just like they just didn't care. Like no one cared about him and what he was feeling. I remember being at shows and I was like, he played before me in Vegas and he would be just missing. He would play like two hours later and he would have to get fucked up to get on stage because he just couldn't do it. He couldn't be up there. He couldn't be on the, on a pedestal. And I feel, I can feel that way sometimes. Like on this tour, you know, just jet lag alone. You're like, mm. you're like nodding out at dinner and you're like, oh, I got to go be excited for this crowd. And um, I'm really good at like making that work for myself now. So these people, owe, you know, I, I owe them this experience. But yes, I take a lot more time for myself now. Like I'm like, I don't, this, I don't need to do these anymore. I'm telling them like, I, this is, this is over for me. This is like something I would do three years ago. It's important to, to, to take that, that away, that, that out of the equation. I'll, I'll feel a lot better, but yeah, you got to make those personal choices and you got to, like I said, people that are, that are hungry, like me and you, that just, that when they get on the train, they're just like going full throttle. You do need something to say like, okay, it's, it's okay to like not go hundred miles an hour all the time. You can like go like at a, at a strolling pace or something. And I guess for you, from what I read, a lot of that was your kids as well, right? Yeah. When you, when when your first child was born, you talked about that being a really pivotal moment. It taught you that time, the, the value yeah. of time. And I think my first kid, when I had my first son in Lockett, I just, <clears throat> I was like, I went, I actually went faster. So I was like, I did. I was like, also as a father, your kids, I was like, th- 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 I found a connection with my sons when I was, they were like five and four years old when they were like, because really the mother's like everything. They're mm-hmm. not leaving her sight. They're not around. They're not, they don't really give a shit about like their fathers. I, I felt like that in the beginning of my son. But so I was like, I got a kid now. My life's about to get really complicated. And I, I think all my my best work happened around them because you said time management. I was like, okay, I have like Saturday, Sunday, or I have like Wednesday off. I'm going to go to the studio for 16 hours every other day because I don't want to do anything else. This is the mm-hmm. time I have. Like those five years, I did every, all the my biggest records. And my next son was born and my time got even crazier. And then um, he just kind of like like I said, you got to manage time better each time. Like you got to, got to figure out how to make it work. Uh, I'm still figuring it out. You know, now my boys are entering like the teenage years, like they're 11, seven. So they're asking me questions now that they never would before. Like I'm like having to give mm. them like, you know, boy and man advice, which I was like, this is cool. And I'm mm. having conversations that I can relate to them as much as they can relate to me before it was like with baby shark and <laughs> Legos and stuff. When you um, talking about the, the, your three boys, when you you did this really sweet post, um, giving a bit of a shout out to their mothers, and and in that sentence you said, "I'm still a work in progress," and I was really in- intrigued by that. Why did you say, "I'm still a work in progress" as it relates to a post about the, the mothers and your boys? I think because you know my my boys, I want them to to I want them like I want to instill them the same discipline that my father has given me you know, which I don't, I don't know how to do that. Like, I don't think my father knew either. Like he had, I remember going to my father's rooms and he would have like books about like being the best dad. You know, like, I remember like, I was like, well, I was like, I didn't, I didn't think that about till I was later. I'm like, damn, maybe I should check that book out. You know, like, I'm like, I was, it seemed silly when I was younger, but I think being the person I am, I'm also like this, like, like I said, my personality is so big that I feel like I, I'm kind of alpha even for my children. Like, I'm like, when I, when I'm off break, I'm like, let's go snowboarding. Let's go to the basketball court. And they're just like, dad, relax like Maybe we want to watch tv or something you know i'm like and i'm like i'm just like why don't they want to do all this stuff with me like i don't know i'm like they think i'm like the crazy person that comes over and like takes them away to do crazy stuff all the time and it's like it's a big distraction in their life a lot of times so i've, I've got to figure out how to like be with them you know more than just be their insane sports dad i gotta like be their their, their friend too so that's like what i'm talking about things like that when you you know just even like sitting with my son my seven-year-old and like watching cartoons or watching him play Minecraft on his iPad is so much more important to him. If I do that for an hour, than like 
take them on like a trip to Nepal or something, which I've done. You know, like it's like they're like they remember that, but they actually remember this time in on the couch with me a lot more. I feel like. Quick one, as you might know, Crafted are one of the sponsors of this podcast and Crafted are a jewellery brand and they make really meaningful pieces of jewellery. And this piece by Crafted, when I put it on, for me, it represents courage. It represents ambition. It represents being calm and loving and respectful and nurturing while also being the antithesis of that, seemingly the antithesis of that, which is um, sometimes a little bit aggressive with my goals and determined and courageous and brave. The really wonderful thing about crafted jewelry is it's super affordable. It looks amazing. The pieces hold tremendous meaning and they are really well made. The, the other thing that we, we were talking about just then is this, um, it just came to mind is when I had Olympians on this podcast, they talked to me about this thing called gold medal depression and Israel Adesanya came here, the UFC champion yeah. um, two weeks ago. And he said that the worst day of his life was the day after he won the belt. The belt. Yeah. He said he went straight into therapy. And I, I saw a similar tone and a similar narrative when you spoke about, in fact, some of the worst days are the day after the high. Yeah. And then you you actually said that you have to kind of suppress the high 100%. to avoid the low. Yeah. Always. Because so I feel like it gets addicting. Because I mean, like, Israel, he only, he, he does like, what, like two big fights a year. Yeah, like I'm like yeah. doing like, which is I'm not knocking him because he'll be the fucking amazing. But um, I have to do like 250 like shows, you know, like sometimes and every night might be bigger. Some nights might be lame. You got to just take it in stride. Every once in a while I'm like, damn, that was awesome. And I'm like, appreciate the like, I have, you have to have gratitude for that. But I mean, if it's going to be your lifestyle every night, people are always like, you don't drink when you're DJing. I'm like, I'm DJing like 200 nights a year. I can't be drunk. <laughs> I'll be dead. Like, it's like, it's like, I don't know. It's like not even, why are you even asking that question? It's like, this is still a job for me. I found ways to like have energy and like have this feeling. And like, it's, it's like, it's actually, I think it's mental work to do that. But you always, if you're just going to be like in these peaks and valleys all the time, that's not healthy. And I see a lot of people that are other creators and it's crazy, but like the best creators are really like have bipolar tendencies. I've noticed that like some of my, my favorite people I collaborate with, I've, I've noticed they have, and some of them aren't addressing it. And it's like, it leads to their six, their, their failures in some parts. Like I always see, like, I think my, my, the most creative people like have are always dealing with that, you know, whether it was Bowie or uh, other DJs, like I see that a lot in my peers. And I think it's important to, cause they love that high too. They're chasing that high of like that experience, you know, mm. it's just like a drug, like having like fans, you know, scream being at a festival, but eventually you just kind of like get drowned out the noise and just figure out it's make it more of a job because you can't just live like every night's like the biggest party of your life, you know, cause then it will be, there's going to be a big downer. And you've changed yourself. You said you've changed yourself to be like present and energetic without letting the adrenaline fill your body yeah. and then staying up till 7am. Also, yeah, it's a hard, it's hard to sleep. You yeah. know, like when you do a show, like I'm leaving Vegas, I'm doing like, it's a great party. We like do one to 3am and I'm like, have a little vibe after the show. And then it's like, damn, I gotta go to bed. I gotta be up at nine to take my kids. I'm like, how do you like wind down? Because that's really hard to do too. I had the tiniest dose of this. We took this podcast, we made it a musical and we did three nights at the Palladium. And then, so I, I started going to sleep at 7 a.m. So I'd come off stage at the Palladium, maybe midnight, come back here and I'd sit here at the table just like. It's impossible. That's buzzing. why I'm not even touching this coffee. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to like, I'm like, you know. You don't want the, yeah, yeah. So you have to literally, I think you have to take in strides, you know, because there's always going to be, I think, I think deep down inside of me, if I like lose all of the, if I label drop me, I couldn't make music anymore. Mm -hmm. I'm not DJing. I don't really, you know, like I've, I flop so hard. 
I feel like I can start over again. That's like something I feel inside me. Okay, maybe I would be like, a, I love furniture. Maybe I'll be a carpenter. Whatever it is, mm. that's just the thing I'm saying. I just feel yeah. like, I feel like, or a pizza maker, whatever it is, I always feel like if you have that feeling inside you that you can lose everything and, and be okay with it, that's, maybe that's the key to success. Then you know it's, all this is just like a facade. Like it's really like, I'll be comfortable as long as I get to do something I love again. Mm. I mean, it doesn't have to be huge. I don't be rich, but I feel like any moment if I got taken away, I have my family and I have my kids and I'm, I'll gladly go and do something with them and live a humble life. I'm, I always feel like I'm, that's, I'm, I'm ready for that, you know? And your new album, this is what, 20 years into your career now? And it's your, it's your second full length yeah. album since like Florida? Yeah, that's, that's happened because uh, once I started going to the, to the studio in LA, I was like, this, you don't make solo albums like Florida, you make albums for other people. You know, I'm just a DJ. I'm like a brand. This brand is limited to some a level. But if I work on Britney Spears' album, well, I can make this much money, or I can make a hit that streams like this. Or if I do this album, and it wasn't until I think we did Major Laser, I was like, okay, well at least I can own this project also and make the same size records and take all of it. You know, that became kind of like just the business side of it. I was like, this is a lot better you know now and this i think finally diplo's the point where like okay i have no other brands to put it in mm. this is gonna be my records now kind of like that's kind of how this album happened because that's still it's a dance album but i worked on it as a songwriter you know because you hear the songs they got verse chorus verse they're not straight techno records they're not straight acid records they're just like they're kind of built like pop records 20 years in um releasing this album what are you sick of in the process in the industry what are you just like, I hate this shit? Uh, I think going through Heathrow's, like uh, <laughs> the liquids, come on, like what is up with that? <laughs> if I could not travel ever again, that was, I mean, I literally had to spend like 30 minutes there yesterday. Cause like, I was like, they were looking for this one tiny eye cream that was in the mm. bottom of a freaking, I was, I was like, bro, you can have all this stuff. Just mm. take it, take it away from me. <laughs> but this, the travel is the worst. You know, I wish I could teleport to each show, but uh, it's, yeah, that's probably the worst thing. If I could just not, if I could just sit home. I also got a really nice house now in Malibu. So I'm like, don't want to go on tour anymore. I kind of want to sit there. I love, I love the, when I was on Twitch, I was DJing uh, this yeah, thing. I just yeah, didn't yeah. make any money. I was yeah, like, yeah, yeah. but uh, it was, it's cool. I haven't been in Europe in three years. So it's, you know, it's actually feels brand new to me. In this, in this line of work, the whole audience changes like every three years too. Mm. Like kids that were ravers and go to clubs when they're 24, when they're 27, they've got full-time jobs and their little cousins have it. And I've done like, it's 20, I've done like seven of those generations, I feel like, and they're still coming mm -hmm. out and seeing me play. So I've been really lucky. Based on the life you've lived, when your three boys get to, you know, 16, 18 years old and they come to you and say, dad, I need advice on like what I should pursue. How do I become, yeah. what is the general advice? Is there anything that stands out to you or is it just? Man, I will take them on the road with me, I guess. That's the only thing I can do. That's the best, that's the best advice I can give them. Be like, this is what I do every day. Just so you know, you think I'm like doing some crazy shit. I actually have to wake up and go to the gym and have to go. We're doing some press and promo. I have to get ready for the show. We're going to do dinner with the promoter as a nice favor. And we're going to go to the concert. Oh, there's an appearance afterwards. This is what I do. And I go back in the morning. I'm, I'm going to the studio first thing in the morning just to show them what it, take, what it takes. Like, and this is like, you know, 10 years in just to let them know it's what the process is like. That's the best I can do. I can actually show them that, you know, a lot of kids wouldn't have that, wouldn't have their parents to give them something like that. Um, but yeah, that's what I, I trained with George Foreman Jr. He's a, he's a boxing hmm. trainer and his father, he said that he didn't really understand anything about life till his father took him to the, on the road to see him fight and took him to like the gym sessions and how much work he did. Hmm. And I was in the middle of like George's like uh, 
the griddle he was doing oh, before yeah, McGrill yeah. era. Yeah. And um, he said it just like something clicked changed inside of him. It changed him inside. Why the gym? You've mentioned that twice. Is that a big? Cause oh, you- because I think I just, I actually every day I have to go to the gym. It's like the one thing that I have to do to like make me feel like normal because I, with the jet lag for one, but then I also traveling. And then I think I need like an hour. If it's yoga, if it's something, I just need like to sweat for an hour every day to feel normal. I don't know what it is, but it's been like that for like the last 10 years. It's not a very healthy lifestyle. I mean, I don't drink very often, but this COVID got me into drinking again because it was a little bit boring to go mm. to eat dinner every night. So I think I'm, I'm, in the, I'm trying to reset that right. a little bit. When someone's obsessive and they achieve success and they're flying 300, well, they have 300 shows a year. I, I can't, it's an inconceivable number in my mind. Um, their relationships in terms of their romantic relationships, like how on earth does one maintain good romantic relationships when they're that obsessed? I've had, I mean, it's, it's, it's been hard. I had a girlfriend during the COVID times and she was like great energy. She understood my life. Really, you got to understand your lifestyle because it's, it's so fast paced. Also, you're going to be, it's about you. It's like, you're the, you're the artist, right? It's like, and when I was dating people that were in the music industry, in the beginning, I didn't understand at all, like that they're two different people. One's the person that I know, and then one's the, the artist, you know, because that's a whole facade. Mm-hmm. Like you go and see them on stage, you go see them do this. It's not the person that you see in the bedroom at the end of the night or whatever. It's different. And I couldn't figure out, I couldn't figure that out as a young person. Like, and that's why I don't, I don't think it's probably not that healthy to date someone else that's also in the music business. Cause it's like really, it's like smoke and mirrors a lot between what they're doing, what they, what their, what their shows are like. And who they are as a person and who they are as a, as like an artist is different. Do you value that? Do you value romantic connection? Is it a big I do. priority? Yeah, I do. I have, I think, you know, I have two uh, mothers of my children and like finding the balance with them has been like the hardest thing, but it's like so great now. It's like so peaceful. Like they, everybody's in like, a, everybody loves each other. And like my kids are all happy and the mothers are happy and um, everybody's healthy. Hmm. That was been and then you know if i have a new girlfriend i brought her into the mix and they liked her too it was like so i've like found this kind of harmony in it you know but um there's always turbulence you know having a we're having a fight now like what school my son goes to to high school so i have to like navigate that problem there's like new problems all the time you know never you're never going to figure everything out are you difficult to be in a relationship with Do uh, you think? i think no because i'm literally <laughs> like i'm down i'm just whatever i'm, I'm along for the ride i'm like whatever mm-hmm. but then of course i have these kind of Scorpio tendencies that have like zero emotions. So like, it's hard to really- Zero, emo- zero emotions. Yeah, there's like nothing. You're gonna get nothing from me most of the time. I feel really? Like, yeah. So a lot of girls, they but, they, but if you spend enough time with me, you, you know the real me, but I think it's it takes a while. You're gonna get nothing from me most of the time in terms of emotions. Yeah, I'm really emotionless. Emotionlessness, I feel like I don't I don't show a lot of emotion. You know, I'm kind of like, I think this is what I got from my dad. I'm just like, like an army guy, you know, I'm like out here just like saving face, like poker face. I'm always like, it's hard to get through my exterior. Um, Is that a good thing? Do you think for like, in terms of mental it's, health? It's just, yeah. I mean, I found people that could deal with it, you know, probably not a good thing. No, but it's been like that. I think that's also the the thing you have to put on to be, like I said, be in this world too. Like to, to like, it's, it's definitely a, something to protect me, but at the same time, you know, if you get the right person, you, you you give her everything. I sat here with Patrice Evra. He's the, you're a football fan, you're an Arsenal fan, mm-hmm. right? So Patrice Evra was the, the famous Manchester United left back. And 
he said something similar to me. He said he grew up on the streets of France, drug dealing. His, he watched his brothers in his house die from drug overdoses in the, in the bathroom. And then his head teacher at the time, like sexually molested him. So he put up this, and to survive on the streets of France at the time, he put up this big kind of external outer wall, tough skin, as you might've called it. And that served him to becoming a, a, an elite athlete. And yeah. it served him to a point. And then one day his girl turned to him on the sofa and said, are you happy? And he was like, fight back. Yeah, I'm happy. Yeah, yeah. But then she kept persisting, <laughs> right? Like angrily, right? That that defense. And then she kept persisting and he just broke down. And he'd never told anybody what had happened to him with his headmaster. And he told her at like 35 years old. And he said to me while he was sat here, that journey of like opening up and not being the tough guy anymore actually changed his life. It changed his relationship with his kids. It meant that he finally talked about how he felt for the first time, even though it made him feel vulnerable. And that's why I asked the question, is it, is it a good thing like to be... You know, I'm, I'm, I think I'm, I'm very selfish because at the end of the day, I'm never lonely on the road. And I think it's because I've never fell in love with a girl. Like I never felt like, ah, this is love. Cause if, really? if it was love, it's love. Like the love is like love. Like you, I mean, I had my heart broken. Maybe I was in love a little bit, but like, I never felt like life-changing love until my son was born. And then I was like that, the love I have with my, my firstborn son out and then my second, my third, it's like the connection though. I'm like, damn, no matter what, this kid stuck with me. Like, this is like my life partner for real. Like this is like somebody that I have to make this person a better human. Like that was something that when that happened, it became like my go-to. Like I, I'm always going to, this is the, this is the person that I care the most about all, all three of these boys. It really, that was the first time I, I understood love was when I had children, you know, and maybe that sounds weird to you, but it just feels like that's undeniable. Like no matter what they do, I'm going to love them. Like, you know, do no. you believe in love? romantically maybe of- maybe not maybe i don't i don't have it i mean i'm still like playing the game like i'm still you know like you know trying to find a great woman to settle down with our previous guests always write a question for the next guest and then funnily enough i never tell the guest who the previous person was he wrote a question for you didn't know who he was writing it for he he wrote um why do you exist maybe it is to bring joy and inspiration to people and maybe have, you know, and some, in maybe new music and exploration into culture, I hope. And then in like a more spiritual way, it is to just add something to the world that wasn't there before because everything you create in the fabric of time and space is something that's brand new. And that's what we, that's only what we add. So those are three answers. Amen. Thank you so much. And thank yeah. you for, for coming here. Your new album, Diplo, which me and my girlfriend sat on this table a couple of days ago listening to. It's remarkable that someone 20 years into their career can create a project that feels so fresh and relevant and exciting at the same time. I honestly, I, I played the record for my girlfriend. We we're going through the record. Did you guys do it podcast? podcasts? No, no, we, 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 were eating dinner <laughs> here. we were eating dinner here. And I was like, oh, Di-, I was like, Diplo's coming in. And so I started playing the new records in the album. And she's from France and Portugal. She lives in Indonesia. She goes, I know that one. She goes, I know that one. Oh. Because a lot of the singles, yeah, well, yeah, and it was, and I, I literally had to check the year in which the album had dropped because they, the, the songs felt so familiar, yeah, and, and that really took me off guard. But um, I'll be honest, we added a couple tracks that were already out. Yeah, I know that. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) because from the view numbers, I think the streams go up first week a little bit, but uh, yeah, but um, there's, there's, they're, they're they're part of the project. I mean, I had, I got really lucky here in the UK. I had the song with Paul Wolford called "Looking for Me" that was like so big here I was so mm. it was like my my probably my biggest solo record I've ever had in anywhere was that was like number one in Ireland I think it was number two here but um I feel like the UK really 
if anything, the dance culture, they understand it. Like they mm -hmm. get it. It's been a while. You guys have like real dance projects like, you know, Chemical Brothers, Chase the Status, Bicep, uh, Disclosure. You have like mm -hmm. the idea of like dance projects, which we don't have in America. We just have like mm -hmm. a bunch of like scummy DJs going out every <laughs> night and playing in Las Vegas. But we're trying to build it. I think it's important. But here you guys have this culture. It's amazing. Well, thank you for blessing us with another project. And it's, it's legendary that it's so resonant 20 years into your career. Yeah. So it's really, really inspiring. Thank you for being yes, here. Yes, sir. Thank you. Huge pleasure. Thank you.